Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Michigan's top court hands former President Trump a victory, keeping him on the 2024 ballot. What could come next? Trucks carrying humanitarian aid and fuel cross the Rafah border between Egypt and Gaza. An international team of surgeons tours an overcrowded hospital in Khan Yunis. A Democratic mayor says the U.S. should start deporting illegal immigrants. Find out what else the mayor of Eagle Pass, Texas, wants the Biden administration to do. Mandatory gender-neutral toy sections in California. Some stores will soon be fined if they don't have such sections for kids. We have the details of the new law. Russia warns Japan about grave consequences if its Patriot air defense systems end up in the hands of Ukraine. A top Ukrainian general said its military draft offices need to do better work. This as an unpopular move to lower the age for mobilizing soldiers makes waves. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former President Trump will stay on the primary ballot in Michigan. The Michigan Supreme Court has rejected an attempt to remove him from the 2024 ballot. Those who argued for Trump's removal cited the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists. The ruling came after the Colorado Supreme Court took Trump off its primary ballot. They said it was due to his role in the January 6th Capitol breach. However, the Michigan Court of Appeals upheld a ruling that said state law doesn't give election officials any leeway to police the eligibility of presidential primary candidates. The next step for both of these decisions will likely be to appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. An international team of surgeons toured an overcrowded hospital in Khan Yunus on Tuesday. The envoy is in Gaza to help local medical staff perform complex surgeries. Some of the six surgeons are representatives of Rama Worldwide. The Islamic nonprofit organization is based in the U.S. A spokesperson for the Rama Worldwide said doctors worldwide are ready to help. Getting into the enclave is the issue. Only a fraction of hospitals in the Gaza Strip are still functional. Trucks carrying humanitarian aid and fuel crossed the Rafah border between Egypt and Gaza Wednesday. An IDF spokesman told NBC's Meet the Press that Hamas is stealing humanitarian aid. Israel said it will keep fighting Hamas despite international calls for a ceasefire. Israel hopes to free the more than 100 hostages who remain in captivity in Gaza. The IDF and Hezbollah have also traded fire over the Israel-Lebanon border. The Democratic mayor of Eagle Pass, Texas, speaking on the ongoing border crisis. He says the U.S. should start deporting people. According to the mayor, the problem starts with Bi President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris not taking a stance on the issue. It's very disappointing that they haven't made that message themselves, that you can't come into this country illegally, one. And second, yes, of course, there has to be a consequence to somebody breaking the law. People know that they're processing them quick. That's why they keep coming. So until we start deporting people in large amounts, this will continue to keep going. He also called the federal government's handling of the crisis unacceptable. He says Eagle Pass is getting slammed with thousands of people entering illegally every single day while being ignored by the government in D.C. 
The mayor says illegal immigration negatively affects the community's safety and economy. His city's police have to assist Border Patrol in processing immigrants, which he says takes away resources from the city. In New York, officials are reportedly losing faith in Mayor Eric Adams over his handling of the illegal immigration crisis. The New York Times published a report this week on New York City's handling of the crisis. Officials in upstate New York reportedly criticized the mayor, saying he sent them buses with immigrants without letting them know. Many human rights advocates and local officials in the city reportedly also disagree with Adams' handling of the issue. This comes just a few weeks after a Quinnipiac poll found Adams had the lowest approval rating of any New York City mayor in over 25 years. Will the border crisis change anytime soon? U.S. and Mexican officials are set to meet in Mexico today, according to the State Department. They'll discuss the migration crisis, calling it unprecedented. They'll also discuss border security. Joining me now to look at the mounting crisis is Andrew Arthur, fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. What can we expect from this meeting today? So, uh... Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas are going down to Mexico to meet with the president, Andres Lopez uh, Obrador, to talk about Mexico actually beefing up its southwest border to or its southern border to prevent uh, migrants from entering Mexico and proceeding into the United States. They also want Mexico to take back individuals who have been removed from the United States, including individuals who aren't from Mexico. Mexico, of course, has to agree to that uh, in order for that to happen. But with respect to those two issues, stopping migrants from uh, proceeding through Mexico and sending migrants back to Mexico from the United States, those are two keys to the Biden administration's plans to continue in congressional negotiations. And how might these talks compare to previous U.S.-Mexico talks about the border that the Biden administration has held? The Biden administration has largely taken a hands-off approach to Mexico, at least compared to the Trump administration. President Trump threatened Mexico with economic sanctions if it didn't assist the United States in U.S. border security. The Biden administration rolled back nearly all of uh, those threats, and in fact, it's largely allowed Mexico to do what it wanted uh, in you know, moving migrants through Mexico to the United States. So this really is a sea change. This is a completely different tack than the Biden administration has taken up to this point. And the State Department has called this migration crisis unprecedented irregular migration in the Western Hemisphere. Talk about the scale of this compared to other mass migrations in the region in recent decades. Yeah, we've never seen migration like this to the United States, but there have, large, there have been uh, migrant movements throughout Central and South America for decades. We had revolutions in uh, El Salvador and Guatemala. Of course, we had uh, the you know Chavismo in Venezuela. Individuals would move, but they would generally move to nearby countries. This is the first time that we've seen people move from countries like Brazil, Venezuela, Colombia to the United States. The Biden administration's policies have, in essence, in their minds, in the migrants' minds, invited them to come to this country. Uh, and so they're bypassing any number of other asylum granting countries to make their way here. And, you know, there's this poem at the base of the Statue of Liberty. I wanted to remind everybody it, it says, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning 
to breathe free. You know, U.S. identity is shaped by migration, and this quote reflects that, you know, the great migration in the last century. Um, how can the U.S. balance that with the need to stem the flow of terrorists, weapons, drugs, and slaves coming across the southern border, in some cases in unprecedented numbers? So for that, I go back to Barbara Jordan, uh, civil rights icon of President Clinton, uh, made his chairman of the Commission on Immigration Reform. And she explained that immigration policy in the United States needs to protect the most disadvantaged Americans, which she identified as members of minority groups traditionally uh, discriminated against inner city youth and legal immigrants who had not uh, yet adjusted to life in the United States. So that is the great tension. Jordan also warned, however, that if we can't control illegal immigration, she was afraid that uh, Americans would lose faith in legal immigration uh, to this country. We already see that comp that happening. Immigration policy, yes, needs to uh, promote humanitarian ideals. We already do our fair share. We have more asylum applicants and asylees in this country than the rest of the world combined. Uh, but we also need to be concerned about the wages and working conditions of those most disadvantaged Americans. The Biden administration has largely ignored those disadvantaged Americans uh, in order to promote the humanitarian ideals of the rest. A balance needs to be struck, uh, but thus far the administration has refused to even consider a balance in that uh, Andrew, calculus. Andrew, what will it take for Democrats and Republicans in Congress to be able to see eye to eye on this issue and strike that kind of a balance like you're talking about? This is a hotly charged issue. In fact, Kristen Sinema, independent uh, senator from Arizona, noted uh, that this is probably the most visceral issue uh, that Capitol Hill is dealing with. But it's also a real political liability for congressional Democrats and for the White House. Uh, we, the president receives his lowest polling numbers when it comes to immigration and the border. American voters more strongly support the Republican position, the, the Democratic position on immigration and the border uh, than on any other issue. So, you know, politics will play a role, but I believe that, you know, even politics aside, uh, Democrats such as Mayor Salinas in Eagle Pass and Mayor Adams in New York have now identified migration as a real issue that is undermining uh, their values uh, and their coffers. Uh, and so I think that there's a lot of pressure, both from uh, outside the party and inside uh, the Democratic Party, to come to an agreement. Yeah. And I'm hopeful that an agreement will be struck. The harder question is going to be whether the Republican House accepts whatever agreement the Republicans in the Senate come to. So that remains to be seen. All right. Andrew Arthur, thank you so much for your time, fellow in law and policy at the Center for Immigration Studies. Thank you so much for having me. Coming up, a judge is striking down a First Amendment claim by Project Veritas. That's in a case involving the diary of President Biden's daughter. What will the Senate races look like next year? Democrats hold a slim majority and have twice as many seats up for re-election than Republicans. We speak with a former congressional candidate when we return. Welcome back. Who will former President Trump pick as a running mate? 
Some speculate Trump plans to run with a female candidate if he wins the Republican nomination. Now the former president has scheduled two campaign events with prominent Republican women. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem is set to speak in Iowa on January 3rd. A day later, on January 4th, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is scheduled to speak in the Hawkeye State. Both have expressed interest in being Trump's running mate in September. The former president said he liked the idea of a female running mate. Since then, many have been saying that a woman is destined for the role, including former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon, who says Trump should make a list of about 10 female candidates to consider. Bannon specifically named Governor Nome, saying she understands the MAGA movement. He also mentioned Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who served as a press secretary for President Trump. Donald Trump Jr. this week spoke with Newsmax about the possibility of presidential candidate Nikki Haley as VP. I wouldn't have her on. I would go to great lengths to make sure that that doesn't happen. Nikki Haley wants never-ending wars. She's a puppet of the establishment in Washington, D.C. He also alleged that if chosen as vice president, Haley would attempt to destroy Trump from within. Congresswoman Green earlier this month said the MAGA movement would revolt if Trump works with Haley. The DeSantis campaign, meanwhile, launched a website called Trump Nikki 2024. It suggests Haley is actually aiming for the vice presidency alongside Trump. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is pulling funding for TV ads with just weeks to go ahead of the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the move. Ramaswamy's campaign spokesperson confirmed to NBC News that they stopped buying TV ads, which typically make up the majority of political advertising spending, and have none booked for the immediate or distant future. Ramaswamy cast the move in a positive light on X, writing that presidential TV ad spending is idiotic. It comes with a low return on investment and is a trick that political consultants use to bamboozle candidates who suffer from low IQ. The biotech entrepreneur says his campaign is doing things differently, spending money in a way, he says, follows the data. Ramaswamy campaign press secretary Trisha McLaughlin told NBC the campaign is focused on bringing out the voters they've identified, using mail, text, live calls, and going door to door. Ramaswamy continues to project optimism, writing, big surprise coming on January 15th. He told Fox News that the Republican Party has grown lazy and needs to offer a better vision to people hungry for change. What do we actually stand for? Individual, family, nation, God. That actually beats race, gender, sexuality and climate if we have the courage to actually stand for something. Ramaswamy's move to pull TV ad funding sparked speculation on X that he would be former President Donald Trump's running mate. One user wrote, he's going to drop out and endorse Trump. It was his plan all along, not running for president, but auditioning for vice president. While another wrote, this has VP written all over it. The latest national Real Clear politics polling averages have former President Donald Trump in front with over 62 percent, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley neck and neck with about 11 percent, and biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy in fourth with about 4 percent. The Iowa caucuses are on January 15th, the New Hampshire primary on January 23rd. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. 
Democrats could be nervous about the 2024 Senate races. They have a slim majority in the upper chamber and twice as many Democratic seats are up for re-election than Republican seats. For analysis of the Senate situation, we speak with political strategist and former congressional candidate Raven Harrison. Raven Harrison, thank you so much for joining us. Of all the Senate seats up for re-election this year, which one stands out to you the most? Well, I've got a few that stand out. One is the race in, in Arizona. There's been a lot of attention paid to that uh, because of Kerry Lakes in it and Kristen Sinema going to independent from Democrat. So a lot of eyes are on Arizona. We're also keeping our eyes on uh, West Virginia with Joe Manchin retiring and Michigan uh, is a big toss up right now. And why can you say a bit more about why these are so interesting to you? Well, they're interesting because we have so many dynamics, as you uh, may or may not know, they have a 51 to 49 majority. Democrats have a majority in the Senate right now. It's a very slim margin, but we've got three in the independent category that make that kind of an interesting play. We've got more open seats on the Democrat side right now coming up for re-election in 24. So you've got the numbers game going there, and then you've got a very slim razor slim majority on the Congress side that leans toward Republicans, but we have a lot of those seats that are up, so they're going to be feeding off of each other. But right now, what you're looking at is it comes down to the, the, the polarization in these specific markets in Michigan, Arizona, uh, are some of the most polarized we've seen as far as Senate races. All right, got it. And you mentioned the slim majority in the Senate that the Democrats have. What are the chances of them holding on to that advantage in 2024? It's going to be how the messaging comes out. Uh, what we're looking at is right now, if we look at it statistically, it's looking like it might break even or they might lose a little ground in there. But again, their messaging has always been pretty strong and pretty um, convincing and it goes into an election. So Democrats have always been able to pull it out at the last minute. So we're gonna be looking at some real strong messaging coming into 24. And again, as you mentioned, more Democrat seats are up for re-election than Republican seats. What would a Republican-controlled House and Senate be like? You know, what could they do that a Republican-controlled House alone can't? Well, in theory, we could get some of this gridlock and the, um, the, the partisan blocks that keep going up, but we've seen that that statistically hasn't worked. Back when President Trump had all three branches and the Republicans had, we still had the same level of gridlock. Now we have, you know, we had a Democrat-led you know, with all three branches being controlled. And we got a lot of things through, but we're seeing now a lot of the pushback. So right now, we're not seeing a strong advantage to having both controlled by the same, especially because we have messaging issues on the Republican side, and we have a politic and a, a spending issue on the Democrat side. So it's going to be up to the voters now to see how they want to reset this government balance. Interesting. Now, what did Republican learn, Republicans learn from the 2022 um, elections that they could bring to bear in the 2024? I think what they could learn is the messaging. We've got what you would consider a gift-wrapped platform right now from the Democrats. We've got a world that's on fire. We've got two wars going on. We have a lot of kitchen table issues. But Republicans, despite this, still don't seem to be able to coordinate and focus their messaging. They seem to be all over the place and their primary messages don't vote Democrat, which 
the the voters are saying we want to know what your plan is what is your plan to fix this and this is what i see going into 24 that's going to be critical that the republicans did not do in 22 which is effectively communicate the message and what they intend to do about it all right raven harrison thank you so much thank you some stores in California will soon have to offer toys in a gender-neutral way. Shops failing to adhere to the new rule will be subject to a fine. A bill designed by Governor Gavin Newsom is set to take effect on New Year's Day. It says that stores with over 500 employees must have a gender-neutral toy section. This applies to stores selling toys or childcare items. The gender-neutral section must include products for kids 12 years old and younger. Stores failing to adhere to the policy will face a $500 fine. And a judge is striking down a First Amendment claim by Project Veritas. Now prosecutors may soon see over 900 documents in a case involving the diary of President Biden's daughter. The documents were produced from raids that were authorized in November 2021. That's after Project Veritas allegedly bought a stolen diary that belonged to President Biden's daughter, Ashley. Veritas recently made a First Amendment claim. The group said the government is only prosecuting the case because the diary in question belongs to the president's daughter and that it is trying to stifle the outlet to stop it from investigating the president's family. A judge now struck down the first claim amendment the First Amendment claim the documents can be given to investigators by January 5th. And a reversal of fortune. A federal appeals court has thrown out the conviction of former Congressman Jeff Fortenberry. The court says he was charged in the wrong jurisdiction. The Nebraska Republican was found guilty in 2022 of three felony charges. The charges related to lying to federal authorities about campaign contributions. Prosecutors charged Fortenberry in Los Angeles, where the investigation was based, but the appeals court ruled he should have been charged in Nebraska or Washington, D.C., where the alleged crimes took place. The court said federal prosecutors could retry the case, but there's no word yet whether they will. A Christmas miracle. Police in Indiana say a car crash victim drank rainwater to survive as he was trapped in his vehicle for days. Indiana State Police said on Tuesday that two fishermen found a 27-year-old Matthew Reum pinned inside his pickup truck after a crash on Interstate 94. Police say they believe the crash had actually occurred around December 20th. Reum's truck had gone off the interstate and ended up under the bridge and partially in a creek. Riem was unable to reach his cell phone to call for help. The fisherman who found Riem initially thought he was dead until Riem turned his head and began to speak to them. Authorities came and freed Riem from the truck. He was taken to the hospital with severe and life-threatening injuries. Police are urging drivers to always let someone know when you are traveling and to have an emergency kit in your car. Coming up, a renowned German lawmaker has passed away. Learn more about the statesman who helped negotiate German reunification. And an unpleasant surprise in the city of love, the Eiffel Tower shuts down as workers go on strike. And 10 people died and thousands were left without power after strong thunderstorms hit eastern Australia. We have more on the damaging weather in just a moment here on NTD News Today.
And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany and other European countries. Russia had a stern warning today for Japan regarding its Patriot air defense systems. It says those weapons ending up in Ukraine will have grave consequences for Russia-Japan ties. Japan said last week it would send the missiles to the U.S. after altering its arms export rules. Russia also warned South Korea today for expanding the list of goods that cannot be exported to Russia without special permission saying South Korea should be not be surprised if Moscow retaliates. The list includes heavy construction equipment, rechargeable batteries, aeronautical components, and some cars. Legendary German lawmaker Wolfgang Schäuble died at age 81. His death ends an over 50-year career. Schäuble was a member of the Christian Democratic Union political party since 1965 and a member of parliament since 1972. He helped negotiate German reunification after the fall of the Berlin Wall. He was wheelchair-bound since 1990 after he was shot three times at a campaign event. He died peacefully at home on Tuesday. Over to France, the Eiffel Tower was shut down to visitors today. This is because of a strike over contract negotiations. It's unclear how long the strike would last. Tourists can still access the glass-enclosed base beneath the tower, but entry to the nearly 1,000-foot landmark itself is closed until further notice. The Eiffel Tower is typically open 365 days a year and normally sees about 20,000 visitors per day this time of year. Today marks the 100th anniversary of the death of the tower's founder, Gustav Eiffel. They came looking for a bargain, but left empty-handed. Some shoppers in England were disappointed with this year's Boxing Day sales. Many staple shops kept their doors closed for the UK's traditional day after Christmas holiday. In London, shoppers still lined up outside the famous department store Selfridges. UK consumers were expected to spend nearly $6 billion in the post-Christmas sales, with the average person spending nearly $320. I'm always the first in town trying to get the bargains, but yeah, today's just not really gone that well. Half the stuff I bought isn't even on sale, so it just feels like a normal day of shopping. Next, St John Lewis and M&S were all closed, and I remember when I would go, when I was younger with my parents, they would always be open and they would be the first shops we would go to. Parts of Australia are reeling today after severe thunderstorms killed at least 10 people over the Christmas holidays. Winds battered the country's east with tens of thousands of properties still without power. Here's more. Wild weather lashed the states of Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland on December 25th and 26th. It brought large hailstones, torrential rains and strong winds which blew off roofs and brought down trees. Local resident Paul Boyton is in Helensvale. Oh, it was some of the strongest wind I've ever heard, so yeah, it was pretty scary. The kids were freaking a bit. Yeah, they were pretty nervous. Yeah, uh, Just inside, all you could hear is just all the banging and things breaking. whole time, you know, that's more and more damage to the house and stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Three men were killed after a yacht capsized near Green Island in Moreton Bay, authorities said. Two people were killed by falling trees and two women died after being swept away in flooded storm water drains, police said. The danger isn't over yet. Authorities warn fast-rising rivers and streams could burst the banks inundating campgrounds, 
often crowded over the festive period. So it's the first time we've ever had a concrete power pole destroyed uh, by a storm. That's, uh, that's pretty significant. That's uh, un unprecedented. Certainly the scenes I saw where you didn't just have a single power line down, you had a power line down between every pole. Miles says the damage from the thunderstorms and Cyclone Jasper, which hit the state earlier this month, could be in the billions. Despite more rain predicted, Australia's Bureau of Meteorology expected the wild weather to ease later on Wednesday. South Korea is holding a rare defense drill simulating a possible attack by the north on its capital. The move aims to counter fears that Seoul is within reach of North Korea's weapons and covert attacks. These are rare defense drills in South Korea's capital on Wednesday. Over 1,000 military police and emergency personnel joined the exercise that simulated an attack by North Korea on Seoul. It comes after the North tested an intercontinental ballistic missile and launched its first military spy satellite. The capital's mayor, Oh Se-hoon, cited Hamas' attack on October 7th through towns in Israel, which killed more than 1,200 people. He said it showed that superior military capabilities did not mean much if the enemy mounted a successful, unexpected attack. There was a big lesson for us when Israel's world-class advanced defense system helplessly buckled under a surprise attack by Hamas, armed with conventional artillery and primitive means. Wednesday's drill simulated attacks on a water supply facility, telephone network stations and an underground communications and power cable corridor. Seoul is only 24 miles from the military border with the north. Oh added that it makes the capital particularly susceptible to an attack at any time. The drills came on a day that South Korea imposed new sanctions on eight North Koreans linked to nuclear and missile programs. The neighbors have clashed at sea and one of the South's islands has been bombed by the North. But there has been no direct attack on Seoul since the end of the Korean War in 1953. And with 2023 slowly coming to a close, we take a look at some of the biggest news stories of the year in a special multi-part series. We covered the first quarter yesterday. Here's NTD's Daniel Monahan with the second. April was a busy month for Finland this year. The Russian neighbor joined NATO on April 4th, completing a historic security policy shift triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we can now declare that Finland is the 31st member of the North Atlantic Treaty. Later in the month, Finnish Prime Minister Sanna Marin, the world's youngest prime minister when she took office in 2019, aged 34, stepped down as chair of the center-left Social Democrats. This after her party narrowly lost the election. Moscow under attack as a drone exploded above the Moscow Kremlin in an alleged Ukraine drone attack on May 3rd. Russia accused Ukraine of the attack in a failed attempt to kill President Vladimir Putin. A new king was crowned in England on May 6th. King Charles III was crowned in Britain's biggest ceremonial event in seven decades. Charles succeeded his mother, Queen Elizabeth, when she died in September 2022. The newly crowned King Charles appeared on the Buckingham Palace balcony next to his wife, Queen Camilla, as supporters gathered outside. In health news, the World Health Organization declared that COVID was no longer a health emergency on May 5th. 
The WHO's emergency committee first declared that COVID represented its highest level of alert on January 30, 2020. It's therefore with great hope that I declare COVID-19 over as a global health emergency. Officials say the COVID pandemic killed nearly 7 million people. In Turkey, incumbent Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan won a fiercely fought presidential election in May. The close election forced a May 28th runoff, which Erdogan won 52 to 47 percent. I would like to thank each and every member of our nation who gave us the responsibility of governing the country for the next five years. Russian President Vladimir Putin had to deal with an armed mutiny in June. The private army of mercenary boss Yevgeny Prigozhin seized control of a southern city of more than a million people as part of an attempt to oust the military leadership. The mercenary fighters then barreled towards Moscow on June 24th. Prigozhin says his men were on a march for justice to remove corrupt and incompetent commanders he blamed for botching the war in Ukraine. But Prigozhin eventually called off the march, claiming he wanted to save Russian blood. Disaster struck on the open seas off of Greece in June. At least 82 migrants drowned early on June 14th, and hundreds more were missing and feared dead after their overloaded boat capsized and sank. The boat was carrying up to 750 refugees and migrants. Only 104 people were rescued. And finally, another disaster associated with the name Titanic, a submersible taking wealthy tourists to visit the famous ship's wreckage, stopped communicating on June 18th, about 90 minutes after beginning descent. The world watched tensely as people speculated how long they could survive based on oxygen calculations. A debris field from the imploded ship was found on June 22nd. All those aboard were killed. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Coming up, a school in India is helping girls become expert wrestlers. They're living out their dream of winning medals. And residents in a mountain village in Kyrgyzstan used to have to drive their bottles and cans to a city. Now locals are getting a new recycling facility. Found out more shortly here on NTD News Today. South Korean actor Lee Sun-kyun, known internationally for his role in the Academy Award-winning film Parasite, has died. Police in Seoul confirmed the news today. The actor was 48 years old and is, was being investigated for illegal drug use. Authorities said they received a missing persons report from Lee's manager on their hotline. Lee was found dead in his car this morning. The cause of death is presumed to be suicide. He'd been questioned three times since October as part of an investigation into alleged drug use. He was summoned by police as recently as December 23rd. South Korea has strict anti-drug laws but has seen soaring drug-related offenses in recent years. Throughout the investigation, police said Lee's drug tests all came back negative. A man and a woman were arrested as part of the drug investigation. Lee received a claim for his role as Park Dong-ik, the father of the wealthy Park family in Parasite. In Peru, the annual Takanakui Festival attracts hundreds of costumed participants before the year's end. This traditional fighting ritual acts as a community justice system, aiming to resolve disputes so that everyone can start the new year peacefully. 
through the fights, participants can let go of their anger from personal or economic problems, ranging from legal issues to stolen lovers. There are judges and referees to decide the winners, and local authorities supervise the confrontations. Takanakui combines the words meaning fight and mutual. The event takes place every year. And a school in India is training girls to become professional wrestlers, living out their dream of winning medals. How do they improve their skills? Let's take a look. This wrestling school in North India teaches young girls how to fight. The male-dominated sport is considered taboo for women in many parts of the country. But here, young women are able to hone their skills and build confidence as they do it. The school was co-founded by Usha Sharma in 2009, who is India's first female wrestling coach. She hopes to empower girls in a country where poverty and conservative attitudes often hinder women's rights. It feels nice to see that the same girls who used to graze cows and buffalo, about whom no one cared, there are now four or five people behind them. Their uncles, grandfathers are asking about them. It was very satisfying to see that they could make decisions for themselves and they can drive cars. Morning exercises at the Altius Wrestling Academy include jogging, sprinting, squats and push-ups. Almost all the students, aged between 8 and 22, have pageboy cuts as a defence against hair pulling by opponents. State government funding covers their training, while their parents pay about $109 a month for board and academic tuition, which is provided by a school next door. Many of the students, like 16-year-old Swati Bowell, dream of one day competing on the world stage. For now, I aspire to become an international player. Initially, I dreamt of becoming a national player, but since I started nearing that target, I realized that being an international player is possible too. My dream is to win medals and get international recognition. Another Algiers student, Sonu Kalaraman, represented India before suffering a serious injury. She now coaches at the school and says that many of the students would have been married off long ago had it not been for the academy. The coaches have taught us and showed us what life actually is. We were naive. Had it not been for them, we would not be here in the sports domain. We would have been married off long ago and would be with kids right now. Because of them, we have been able to put a badge of honor to their names, our names and even our families' names. We've earned money as well. Indian women won three bronze medals at the recent Asian Games in China. And last year, a former Altius student won bronze at the Commonwealth Games in Britain. Whether or not these students become champions, the academy provides them with a safe space to build resilience and other skills for later in life. Sharma says she takes pride in seeing former students carving out careers, buying cars and moving ahead. Seven, eight girls from our academy are working in government jobs. One has become a police sub-inspector after bagging a medal in the Commonwealth Games. Her name is Pooja Sihag. So it does feel nice after giving back to the society. And staying in Asia, residents of a picturesque mountain village in Kyrgyzstan used to have to drive their bottles and cans to a city. Now, new recycling facilities are helping locals keep the town clean. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the latest. Jurgalan wants to brand itself as a sustainable tourism destination, and that means keeping these green slopes and mountain streams pristine. 
2020, garbage collection began. We began to collect it to prepare the local population for this, for sorting so that garbage is sorted. A year ago, we launched a trial testing of the equipment. Something was changed, something was added, and two months ago, we launched the main facility and reached our full capacity. The village has just gotten a new recycling facility. The nationwide program hopes to boost tourism. Jergalan attracts hikers in the summer and skiers in the winter. The village isn't easily accessible since it's 280 miles away from the capital, Bishkek. The town sits at an altitude over 9,000 feet above sea level. Personally, I have always collected waste that is accepted, glass and plastic bags. I collected them in heaps and then I drove them to the city of Karakol in my car and handed them over to the collection point. And the rest of the garbage was burned, non-combustible was thrown into a mini landfill. Now it will be different. According to village officials, between 6,000 and 8,000 foreign tourists visited the area in 2022. The recycling plant opened in 2020. Tourists are expected to appreciate the upgrade. Locals certainly do. Due to the fact that we live in a mountainous area, we have been struggling with garbage for a long time. We clean up the garbage all the time, but the problem is where to put it. And today, the waste collection point is opening. This is great news. About one ton of plastic waste is processed here daily. Upon arrival here, waste is already in bags, sorted, separated by color, by quality, by dirtiness, by its condition, because it comes either in oil or in soil or in something else. It's all separated, and each kind is processed separately. The initiative aims to change perceptions around waste. Waste such as plastic, glass, paper, tin cans and others are no longer garbage. They are secondary raw materials, which in Kyrgyzstan are already in great demand from those processors who are engaged in recycling. And it is this secondary raw material that will now be separated from the general garbage. Another tourist town on a lake nearby also suffers from pollution. Plastic and other recyclable litter is a serious problem here. The plastic option prevails, that is, these are plastic bags and plastic bottles. Plus the problem is that our population is probably having fun. They fill these bottles with sand and throw them. And it's hard to remove all these things because it becomes an impossible task. Over the span of nine years, volunteer divers have removed about 1,800 cubic feet of waste, weighing more than 20 tons. It's been a welcome development for both tourists and locals, but there's still much work to be done. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. A temporary marriage license office is open at Harry Reid International Airport. Couples arriving in Las Vegas can tie the knot on the fly. It costs $102. Couples are advised to fill out a marriage license pre-application. The form is available on the county clerk's website. Couples will be required to produce a government-issued ID. Clark County's Marriage License Bureau issues approximately 80,000 marriage licenses a year. Weddings are a crucial part of the city's tourism industry. Las Vegas weddings bring in more than $2.5 billion every year. The temporary office is located near Terminal 1 Baggage Claim. It will be open daily from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. through December 31st. Couples are trying to take advantage of a rare numerical sequence on that date. One, two, three, one, two, three. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com.
Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Trucks carrying humanitarian aid and fuel crossing the Rafah border between Egypt and Gaza. An international team of surgeons tours an overcrowded hospital in Khan Yunus. Michigan's top court hands former President Trump a victory, keeping him on the 2024 ballot. And special counsel Jack Smith is making a new move in the election interference case. We have the latest. While most people in Gaza live in poverty, Hamas has an abundance of cash with its leaders worth billions. Where is Hamas getting its money from? We delve deeper. Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy calls presidential TV ad spending a foolish investment and pulls funding for them. Find out more about what's behind the move. How did the U.S. housing and job markets look in 2023? What were some of the biggest developments? Our business host, Don Mott, reviews the year for us. Dogs continue to amaze us in 2023. See how canines play a major part in people's lives around the world. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Former President Trump will stay on the primary ballot in Michigan. The Michigan Supreme Court has rejected an attempt to remove him from the 2024 ballot. Those who argued for Trump's removal cited the 14th Amendment's ban on insurrectionists. The ruling came after the Colorado Supreme Court took Trump off its primary ballot. They said it was due to his role in the January 6th Capitol breach. However, the Michigan Court of Appeals upheld a ruling that said state law doesn't give election officials any leeway to police the eligibility of presidential primary candidates. The next step for both of these decisions will likely be appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court. And an update on Trump's federal election case. Special Counsel Jack Smith has filed a motion today seeking to block Trump from making political arguments and referencing what Smith calls conspiracy theories during the trial. Smith pointed to Trump's defense that he was prosecuted for political reasons. Smith claimed that such arguments were irrelevant and would inject politics into the proceedings. Smith also seeks to prevent Trump from telling the jury that others, including law enforcement, are to blame for the January 6th Capitol breach. Who will former President Trump pick as a running mate? Some speculate Trump plans to run with a female candidate if he wins the Republican nomination. Now the former president has scheduled two campaign events with prominent Republican women. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem is set to speak in Iowa on January 3rd. A day later, on January 4th, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene is scheduled to speak in the Hawkeye State. Both have expressed interest in being Trump's running mate. In September, the former president said he liked the idea of a female running mate. Since then, many have been saying that a woman is destined for the role, including former White House chief strategist Steve Bannon, who says Trump should make a list of about 10 female candidates to consider. Bannon specifically named Governor Nome, saying she understands the MAGA movement. He also mentioned Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee, who served as a press secretary for President Trump. Donald Trump Jr. this week spoke with Newsmax about the possibility of a presidential candidate Nikki Haley as VP. I wouldn't have her out. I would go to great lengths to make sure that that doesn't happen. Nikki Haley wants never-ending wars. She's a puppet of the establishment in Washington, D.C. 
He also alleged that if chosen as vice president, Haley would attempt to destroy Trump from, from within. Congresswoman Green earlier this month said the MAGA movement would revolt if Trump works with Haley. The DeSantis campaign, meanwhile, launched a website called Trump Nikki 2024. It suggests Haley is actually aiming for the vice presidency alongside Trump. An international team of surgeons toured an overcrowded hospital in Khan Yunus on Tuesday. The envoy is in Gaza to help medical staff perform complex surgeries. Some of the six surgeons are representatives of Rama Worldwide. The Islamic nonprofit organization is based in the U.S. A spokesperson for the Rama Worldwide said doctors worldwide are ready to help. Getting into the enclave is the issue. Only a fraction of hospitals in the Gaza Strip are still functional. Trucks carrying humanitarian aid and fuel crossed the Rafah border between Egypt and Gaza Wednesday. An IDF spokesman told NBC's Meet the Press that Hamas is stealing humanitarian aid. Israel said it will keep fighting Hamas despite international calls for a ceasefire. Israel hopes to free the more than 100 hostages who remain in captivity in Gaza. The IDF and Hezbollah have also traded fire over the Israeli-Lebanon border. And now we have retired Colonel John Mills to discuss the latest developments in the Middle East conflict. Colonel, welcome. With recent U.S. strikes on facilities used by Hezbollah in Iraq following attacks on coalition forces, how do you assess the evolving threat landscape in the region, particularly concerning Iran's proxy activities? Well, thank you, Stephanie. Uh, the, the war is essentially expanding, and everything has to be looked at in terms of uh, being proxies of Iran, whether it's Hezbollah, whether it's Hamas, whether it's Houthis or Somalis uh, raiding ships. And uh, now we have a strike. Uh, the Secretary of Defense, I believe, called it a proportional strike in Iraq, where we still have a footprint, uh, both in Iraq, uh, at al-Assad, uh, and other places, and across the border in Syria. So this is a expanding war. So what implications might that have for regional future, um, you know, military stability in the area and regional stability? Well, I, I think uh, in strategic context, everybody here is working for Iran. Iran is a proxy of China. This is essentially World War III, although we're not really it or, uh, recognizing it or understanding it. One of the most important issues is the, so far I count them as 18 attacks on 18 merchant vessels in the Red Sea, uh, and especially the very, very narrow cut between Yemen and Djibouti. It's only about a 10 to 12 mile wide cut. 18 ships so far have been attacked. We got two that have been seized. This has to be looked at as proxy warfare that will disrupt worldwide supply chains and even further expand uh, the scale and scope of the conflict. And there's also Iran's, uh, you know, purification or uh, of of uranium to near weapons grade production levels. Uh, from a strategic standpoint, what kinds of uh, things should be, we be concerned about, and how should the U.S. be responding? Well, the, the, almost the entirety of the deployed U.S. TV is really focused on the Middle East, which distracts it and takes its eye off the Western Pacific, where very significant uh, matters are ongoing uh, against Taiwan, but also against the Philippines. And uh, there's very uh, active uh, 
uh, shoving and pushing going on between naval elements a very short ways off two two strategic places off the Philippines coast. So this whole conflict really has the U.S. Navy focused in its entirety uh, on the Middle East, which is important, but it takes it means we uh, don't have enough resources or assets to really focus on what's going on in the Western Pacific. So what do you think it would take for the U.S. to properly allocate its resources? In your estimation? Well, uh, under law, the U.S. Navy is supposed to expand significantly to from just under 300 to 355 or greater ships. Uh, this has been a known issue and part of law for several years. The Navy has shown an inability for some reason to actually conduct this expansion. So we almost need a modern two-ocean uh, act, well, same similar act that happened about 1939, 1940, to expand, massively expand the U.S. Navy. We need to get real focus, energy, and attention behind these matters. The last two ND, uh, National Defense Authorization Acts have been very good, but uh, it is just really hard to get Department of Defense spun up and moving. Once they get spun up and moving, that's good, but it takes a while to get them spun up. Lastly, Colonel, what do you think will trigger that? Well, I, I think right now the U.S. Navy is essentially being overwhelmed, even with its focus being in the Middle East. Uh, the Houthis uh, are in some ways running circles. This is a very small geographic area uh, in, in many respects, uh, but uh, the U.S. Navy is showing an inability. Now, we've uh, announced a an international operation, Prosperity Garden, but even that is showing a lot of struggles, and there's no, several nations that are not participating, and even the European nations, which the Suez, they depend on the Suez. They don't really depend on the Suez, but because they are now blocked essentially from using the Suez, that begins to interrupt the international supply chain. And the, and the European navies are just a, a shadow of what they used to be, and they can offer very little to provide safe escorts. So that's why uh, the merchant vessels are now going around uh, the horn of Africa, the bottom of Africa, like it's the 1800s. Mm, a lot to think about there. Thank you so much, Colonel John Mills. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Stephanie. And another perspective on the Israel-Hamas war. Next, we hear from Gerard Felitti, senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. He'll offer us a deeper look at the Hamas terrorist group and where they get their funding. Gerard, while most Gaza citizens live in poverty, Hamas has a, an abundance of cash, with its leaders actually worth billions. So tell us, where is Hamas getting all this cash from? This cash is coming largely from a few sources. One of them is Iran. Iran has been producing money and weapons and subsidizing Hamas and other terrorist organizations for decades. They're also getting money from their own people. They claim essentially what amounts to a tax on goods and services for allowing civilians to utilize the services that Hamas is providing. It's, it's kind of like a mafia collecting protection money, uh, but on a large scale. Uh, and also they're getting a lot of money and aid from the West, from Western taxpayers through the United Nations, from countries like the United States, Switzerland, European countries, some of whom have cut back. But this and illegal trade in, in arms and drugs has kept, uh, has kept them quite wealthy. And so what efforts have been made to try to cut them off from these, these flows of cash? 
Most of these leaders, all of these leaders, in fact, are on terrorist sanctions list, meaning that they can't transact business with Western countries, with Western banks. They're cut off from the normal banking system. The problem is that they have a lot of intermediary shell companies that they use, and they engage in purely illicit activities that are very difficult to track down and stop without the help of other countries. Now, it's important to recognize that while the United States, Canada, and the European Union see Hamas and designate it as a terrorist organization, they're plenty of countries in the world that don't, including China and Russia. So for as long as these countries continue to support Hamas and its leaders, it will be very difficult to crack down on the financing of their terror. Right. So you've mentioned some illicit activities, support from China and Russia. What else makes this difficult to cut off the funding? What makes it difficult to cut off funding is also that they're not necessarily using conventional transactions. Uh, they're, they're using cash moved around in suitcases and in bundles. And they're also starting to use, to be more sophisticated when it comes to the use of cryptocurrency. So it's easy enough to stop a transaction that's denominated in US dollars. It's easy to stop a bank from making a trade, but it's much more difficult when it comes to cryptocurrency and cash being moved in suitcases across borders. Now, we've seen the shifting relations between the U.S. and Iran. How much is that relationship at play in the strength of Hamas, would you say? That relationship is always at play, but Iran has backed Hamas, Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and countless other terrorist organizations for decades. Terrorism is Iran's chief export. And no matter its relations with the U.S., whether or not we're in a treaty with them, whether or not we agree on a, on a nuclear non-proliferation deal, they have and will always continue supporting terrorism, including Hamas. So Iran really is a major impetus for a lot of the ill that's going on in the Middle East and in the world. In your work, you've specialized in money laundering cases. In your view, what do you think that the U.S. and others who are trying to stop this source, all these sources of cash, you know, flooding to Hamas, what can they do to more effectively tackle this? Now, the two main things are getting more global buy-in in designating Hamas as a terrorist organization, in getting China, Russia, and other countries to stop trading with them, to stop financing them. But it's also important for the U.S. government and other friendly government to expand sanctions to secondary sanctions, to people, to individuals who are helping with money laundering. Even in the United States, we have people who are helping send money for, and I use humanitarian causes related to Gaza and Hamas that are really fronts for Hamas. The U.S. government needs to investigate these and shut them down because that still amounts to a lot of money being transferred to terrorism. All right, Gerard Felitti, thank you so much for your time. A Democratic mayor says the U.S. should start deporting illegal immigrants. Find out what else the mayor of Eagle Pass, Texas, wants the Biden administration to do. And mandatory gender-neutral toy sections in California. Some stores will soon be fined if they don't have such sections for kids. We have the details of the new law. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Democratic mayor of Eagle Pass, Texas, speaking on the ongoing border crisis. He says the U.S. should start deporting people. According to the mayor, the problem starts with President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris not taking a stance on the issue. It's very disappointing that they haven't made that message themselves, that you can't come into this country illegally, one. 
And second, yes, of course, there has to be a consequence to somebody breaking the law. People know that they're processing them quick. That's why they keep coming. So until we start deporting people in large amounts, this will continue to keep going. He also called the federal government's handling of the crisis unacceptable. He says Eagle Pass is getting slammed with thousands of people entering illegally every single day while being ignored by the government in D.C. The mayor says illegal immigration negatively affects the community's safety and economy. His city's police have to assist Border Patrol in processing immigrants, which he says takes away resources from the city. In New York, officials are reportedly losing faith in Mayor Eric Adams over his handling of the illegal immigration crisis. The New York Times published a report this week on New York City's handling of the crisis. Officials in upstate New York reportedly criticized the mayor, saying he sent them buses with immigrants without letting them know. Many human rights advocates and local officials in the city reportedly also disagree with Adams' handling of the issue. This comes just after a few weeks after a Quinnipiac poll found Adams had the lowest approval rating of any New York City mayor in over 25 years. Republican presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is pulling funding for TV ads with just weeks to go until the Iowa caucuses and the New Hampshire primary. And TD's Daniel Monahan has more on the move. Ramaswamy's campaign spokesperson confirmed to NBC News that they stopped buying TV ads, which typically make up the majority of political advertising spending and have none booked for the immediate or distant future. Ramaswamy cast the move in a positive light on X, writing that presidential TV ad spending is idiotic. It comes with a low return on investment and is a trick that political consultants use to bamboozle candidates who suffer from low IQ. The biotech entrepreneur says his campaign is doing things differently. Spending money in a way, he says, follows the data. Ramaswamy campaign press secretary Trisha McLaughlin told NBC the campaign is focused on bringing out the voters they've identified using mail, text, live calls and going door to door. Ramaswamy continues to project optimism, writing, big surprise coming on January 15th. He told Fox News that the Republican Party has grown lazy and needs to offer a better vision to people hungry for change. What do we actually stand for? individual, family, nation, God, that actually beats race, gender, sexuality, and climate if we have the courage to actually stand for something. Ramaswamy's move to pull TV ad funding sparked speculation on X that he would be former President Donald Trump's running mate. One user wrote, he's going to drop out and endorse Trump. It was his plan all along, not running for president, but auditioning for vice president. While another wrote, this has VP written all over it. The latest national Real Clear politics polling averages have former President Donald Trump in front with over 62 percent, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley neck and neck with about 11 percent, and biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy in fourth with about 4 percent. The Iowa caucuses are on January 15th, the New Hampshire primary on January 23rd. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Reversal of fortune. A federal appeals court has thrown out the conviction of former Congressman Jeff Fortenberry. The court says he was charged in the wrong jurisdiction. The Nebraska Republican was found guilty in 2022 of three felony charges. The charges related to lying to federal authorities about campaign contributions. 
Prosecutors charged Fort Mary in Los Angeles, where the investigation was based, but the appeals court ruled he should have been charged in Nebraska or Washington, D.C., where the alleged crimes took place. The court said federal prosecutors could retry the case, but there's no word yet whether they will. Some stores in California will soon have to offer toys in a gender-neutral way. Shops failing to adhere to the new rule will be subject to a fine. A bill signed by Governor Gavin Newsom is set to take effect on New Year's Day. It says that stores with over 500 employees must have a gender-neutral toy section. This applies to stores selling toys or childcare items. The gender-neutral section must include products for kids 12 years old and younger. Stores failing to adhere to the policy will face a $500 fine. A judge is striking down a First Amendment claim by Project Veritas. Now, prosecutors may soon see over 900 documents in a case involving the diary of President Biden's daughter. The documents were produced from raids that were authorized in November 2021. That's after Project Veritas allegedly bought a stolen diary that belonged to President Biden's daughter, Ashley. Veritas recently made a First Amendment claim. The group said the government is only prosecuting the case because the diary in question belongs to the president's daughter and that it's trying to stifle the outlet to stop it from investigating the president's family. A judge now struck down the First Amendment claim. The documents can be given to investigators by January 5th. And the New York Times is suing OpenAI and Microsoft for copyright infringement. They filed a complaint today. In it, the New York Times alleges the company's AI technology illegally copied millions of the news organization's articles and that they used the articles to train ChatGPT to provide people with information. As a result, the newspaper alleges the technology is now competing with their own company. In New the New York Times, it says it first discovered its work was being used to train ChatGPT months ago and has since been trying to receive compensation but the newspaper alleges it was unable to reach a resolution with the companies. The New York Times is seeking unspecified monetary damages as well as the destruction of the AI models that use its works. Microsoft and OpenAI have yet to respond to requests for comment. And a Christmas miracle. Police in Indiana say a car crash victim drank rainwater to survive as he was trapped in his vehicle for days. Indiana State Police said on Tuesday that two fishermen found 27-year-old Matthew Reum pinned inside his pickup truck after a crash on Interstate 94. Police say they believe the crash had actually occurred around December 20th. Reum's truck had gone off the interstate and ended up under the bridge and partially in a creek. Reum was unable to reach his cell phone to call for help. The fisherman who found Reum initially thought he was dead until Riam turned his head and began to speak to them. Authorities came and freed Riam from the truck. He was taken to the hospital with severe and life-threatening injuries. Police are urging drivers to always let someone know when you are traveling and to have an emergency kit in your car. Coming up, how did the U.S. housing and job markets look in 2023? Our business host, Don Ma, reviews the year for us. In case you didn't make it to the Alps this holiday, let these California restaurants whisk your taste buds away on a culinary journey. We'll have the details soon when we return. Joining us now is NTD business host Don Ma to give another business news recap of 2023. 
Today we'll be talking about the housing and job market. Don, what were some of the big moments in this year's real estate sector? Yeah, uh, so, well, the biggest thing this year, it was that uh, the real estate market uh, did not see uh, a commercial real estate crash. So if you remember, there were so many predictions about this earlier uh, this year. Uh, you had headlines uh, talking about something like, uh, uh, the party's over in commercial real estate and U.S. office, office vacancy rates hovered around 20% in 2023. But then employees started slowly coming back uh, to their desks and more companies, including BlackRock, Amazon, Salesforce, uh, ordered uh, workers to return to offices at least three days a week this year. Uh, so, But other than commercial real estate, the housing market went through a lot this year as well. Uh, this was the year that the housing market essentially froze over uh, because higher mortgage rates uh, dominated the story this year. The U.S. housing market in 2023 kicked off the year with mortgage rates in the mid-6% range. And then by mid-October, they topped 8%. And the higher they went, uh, the more potential buyers were being priced out of this market um, because at the same time, the housing uh, shortage didn't improve because of the higher rates and that resulted in more would-be sellers deciding to stay put and hold on to their low mortgage rates and home prices refused to come down this year as well as well the median home price went up 2.1 percent year over year and that's a new record according to realtor.com uh, prices start at, started at a median of around $403,000 in January and steadily rose uh, the first half of the year, and they peaked at around $445,000 uh, in June. So what were the big moments in the job market? Yeah, so it seems like uh, the U.S. job market didn't see as much of an eventful, eventful year compared to the real estate market, which, uh, which is good news uh, because uh, we didn't have a very turbulent job market. Uh, unemployment remains low compared to historical standards, uh, despite the Federal Reserve's rate hiking campaign. And we saw solid job growth uh, within the market uh, on a month-to-month -month basis. Um, the market started off pretty hot this year, and now it's starting to cool and started to uh, normalize. Uh, but one of the top points of discussion this year was how tight the job market was. At one point, there were around two job openings uh, for every one person that was looking for a job. So a bit of tightness there. A lot of employees uh, and employers as well face challenges in hiring this year amid intense competition, uh, low unemployment rates and labor shortage. And of course, in 2023, we saw a lot of big companies doing layoffs, uh, especially the tech sector. Uh, if you remember, that includes major players like Microsoft, Amazon, Google, Twitter, Meta, Spotify, and more. And the tech industry has seen more than 240,000 job losses this year. Uh, and finally, another big point of discussion this year was remote work. Uh, remote work uh, spiked during the pandemic. And it seems like it's not going away soon. Many big company CEOs commented on the topic this year. Uh, CEO of JP Morgan, uh, Jamie Dimon, calls himself a remote work skeptic. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg says that uh, engineers get more done in the office. And even Zoom's leadership wants employees back in person two days a week. Um, but, you know, looking at 2023 state of remote work, it seems like people actually quite enjoy working from home. So I, I think uh, it may be here to stay for a while. Not for us, Don. Yeah.
Yeah, I mean, we're all here. Thank <laughs> you so much. This is home. <laughs> right, this is home. Uh, thanks, Don. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from the UK, Germany, and other European countries. Russia had a stern warning today for Japan regarding its Patriot air defense systems. It says those weapons ending up in Ukraine will have grave consequences for Russia-Japan ties. Japan said last week it would send the missiles to the U.S. after altering its arms export rules. Russia also warned South Korea today for expanding the list of goods that cannot be exported to Russia without special permission, saying South Korea should not be surprised if Moscow retaliates. The list includes heavy construction equipment, rechargeable batteries, aeronautical components, and some cars. Recruiting problems in Ukraine. The country's army chief said on Tuesday that he was not satisfied with the work of military draft officers. The offices are tasked with mobilizing troops to keep up the war effort against Russia. The army chief spoke a day after Ukraine's parliament published the text of a new bill reforming the army draft program. It would lower the age of men who can be mobilized from 27 to 25. The bill's publication sparked controversy on social media. The reforms are highly sensitive for a weary population in the midst of a war with no end in sight. As for the local draft offices, as of now, frankly speaking, I am not currently satisfied with the work of the draft offices. If I were satisfied with their work, we would not discuss this bill right now. Legendary German lawmaker Wolfgang Schnobel died at 80, age 81. His death ends an over 50-year career. Schreibler was a member of the Christian Democratic Union political party since 1965 and a member of parliament since 1972. He helped negotiate German reunification after the fall of the Berlin Wall. He was wheelchair bound since 1990 after he was shot three times at a campaign event. He died peacefully at his home on Tuesday. Over to France, the Eiffel Tower was shut down to visitors today. This is because of a strike over contract negotiations. It's unclear how long the strike will last. Tourists can still access the glass-enclosed base beneath the tower, but entry to the nearly 1,000-foot landmark itself is closed until further notice. The Eiffel Tower is typically open 365 days a year and normally sees about 20,000 visitors per day this time of year. Today marks the 100th anniversary of the death of the tower's founder, Gustave Eiffel. They came looking for a bargain, but left empty-handed. Some shoppers in England were disappointed with this year's Boxing Day sales. Many staple shops kept their doors closed for the UK's traditional day after a Christmas holiday. In London, shoppers still lined up outside the famous department store Selfridges. UK consumers were expected to spend nearly $6 billion in the post-Christmas sales, with the average person spending nearly $320. Always the first in town, trying to get the bargains, but yeah, today's just not really gone that well. Half the stuff I bought isn't even on sale, so it just feels like a normal day of shopping. Next, and John Lewis and M&S were all closed, and I remember when I would go, when I was younger with my parents, they would always be open and they would be the first shops we would go to. There's a new trend in holiday dining this year that mimics an experience in the European Alps. It's called Upre ski dining, and it's transporting Californian diners to a winter wonderland of authentic flavors and atmosphere. Can't get away to the European Alps for a winter holiday this year? Don't worry, 
Some California hotels are creating an elegant five-star après ski dining experience just for you. Après ski is a French term meaning after skiing. It refers to social activities skiers can enjoy after a day on the mountain. We chose dishes that are representative of something that is warm and thought out. So the fondue is obviously a classic and we thought a dish such as a braised beef cheek or even a schnitzel would be something warm and filling for somebody that comes off the slopes. Los Angeles restaurants are pulling out all the stops to provide diners with a fun experience that's more convenient than the hassle and stress of a trip to Europe. It gives you uh, something that's fun and shareable. Ultimately, like you're you're going to put this on your social media and you're kind of going to get the same amount of clout. And so, you know, it's it's still a fun it's still a fun time. The world-famous five-star luxury Four Seasons Hotel in Beverly Hills is all in on the après ski theme this holiday. They're collaborating with Four Seasons Maghev in France to offer an authentic après ski menu and atmosphere too. We have decided to take you away on an escape in the French Alps. Um, this was an opportunity to have a partnership with the Four Seasons Maghev so you can discover um, the French Alps through Le Chalet Alpin. We have a curated menu where you can enjoy a cheese fondue, you can have a mulled wine with this après ski concept. Après ski meaning after ski. That's, this is this one more drink that will enable you to, to enjoy and relax at the end of your day. Not everyone can make it to the European Alps for a winter getaway. These California restaurants offer diners the opportunity to transport their taste buds on a delicious tour of alpine après ski cuisine without the stress or expense. Check your freezers. There's an important consumer alert. Frozen fish fillets sold at Whole Foods Market are being recalled due to an undeclared soy allergen. The recall applies to the 365 Whole Foods Market beer-battered pollock and cod fillets. The fillets were sold nationwide between September 8th and December 22nd. Tampa Bay Fisheries says the Pollock fillets have a best-by date of March 7th, 2025. The cod fillets have best-by dates of either February 22nd or 20, 2025 or March 19th of the same year. The company says it has not received any reports of illness, but anyone who has an allergy or severe sensitivity to soy runs the risk of having a serious allergic reaction. Coming up, dogs continue to amaze us in 2023. See how canines play a major part in people's lives, from companionship to rescue operations. Couples are taking advantage of the special numerical sequence of this year's New Year's Eve to get married. See what the Las Vegas airport is coming up with more shortly here on NTD News Today. Thanks for staying with us. Dogs play a major part in our lives, from providing companionship to assisting humans in a variety of roles. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the highlights of man's best friend from 2023. In Ukraine, scientists have been studying dogs around the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. They're trying to find out if the strays can teach humans how to live in the harshest environments. After a reactor exploded in April 1986, many dogs somehow managed to find food, breed, and survive. Now, scientists want to study the genes of their offspring. We've had this golden opportunity to look at the structure of the population and really lay the groundwork for the question we all want to address, which is, how do you survive in a 
in a hostile environment like this for 15 generations. In the French Alps, avalanche rescue dogs save lives. Stash and Nell have been training at this French ski resort all year. The bond between dog and handler is vital during these life-or-death situations. It's mostly about having a connection with the dog. It's a lot to spend a lot of time with him when he's little, all the time, almost all the time with him. And then later, based on play, it's his sausage that's there. There you go. That's what we train him with a lot. It's his toy. It's his grail. This is Rambo, a former military dog. The German Shepherd was seriously injured after a rocket attack in Ukraine. This is where he was hit by the shrapnel. This is where you can see the sign of the surgery. You can see how much is missing up here, the whole ear and his teeth, one or two above and also a couple of below. Rambo spent eight months at a shelter in Hungary. He was finally adopted by the Budapest police. Rambo also helps kids who are bullied for their looks. Unfortunately, it happens that children mock each other because they wear glasses, because they have braces, because their ears look funny, or whatever, because they're different. With Rambo, we might be able to sensitize these children a little and show them that yes, he is injured, he's different, but he can do the same things as other dogs. Another big year for man's best friend. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Scientists have sequenced genetic code from an extinct animal. RNA from a Tasmanian tiger. What's even more impressive, the sample has been stored at room temperature in the Swedish Museum of National History since 1891. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the species that became extinct nearly 100 years ago. RNA molecules are considerably smaller than DNA. Researchers previously thought that they degraded quickly at room temperature. RNA is a molecule that uh, transmits information from the genome to the rest of the cell. And this is the first time that anyone has ever recovered RNA from an extinct species. Dalen says the research isn't primarily focused on bringing the species back to life, but it could have a broad array of applications. So one application I think uh, can be quite interesting going forward into the future is to study RNA viruses. So there's a certain type of viruses that don't have DNA, they only have RNA, that's their genome. The team's work could allow RNA viruses from skins stored in museums to be collected and sequenced, giving scientists the ability to study how these particular viruses evolve. The aim of this research project was not to, to uh, resurrect the thylacine per se, it was rather to, to try to understand more about the thylacine's biology, uh, so which genes were expressed in the skin for example, and we, we do find RNA from one particular gene. Tasmanian tigers were carnivorous marsupials that were hunted to extinction. The last one died at a zoo in Hobart in 1936. Now researchers are considering taking samples from different species for future projects. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And in health news, it's often said that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, but it bears repeating. On this episode of Strong Mind and Body, we look at some essential breakfast foods for sustaining energy throughout the day. Here's Gina Marie. Breakfast should be nutritious and balanced so you can get the best start to your day. Let's look at three types of essential breakfast foods starting with number one, protein. Common protein sources for breakfast include fried or boiled eggs, milk, soy milk, lean pork or chicken. 
protein provides the brain with necessary amino acids. This stimulates mental function, improves learning ability and concentration, and prevents a decrease in the metabolic rate. Number two on the list is fiber. Opt for breakfast foods rich in fiber such as blanched greens, cucumbers, potatoes, carrots, and spinach. These foods create a sense of fullness, promote healthy bowel movements, and enhance physical strength. Number three on the list is carbohydrates. Recommended carbohydrate-rich foods include oatmeal, sweet potatoes, whole grain buns, and whole wheat bread. These foods provide the body with sustained energy, stabilize blood sugar levels, aid digestion, boost physical stamina, and reduce fatigue. Let's wrap up by looking at some breakfast food taboos. You'll want to avoid greasy or deep-fried foods that can lead to obesity and cardiovascular diseases. High-sugar pastries are a no-go. They can result in excessive stomach acid. This can lead to nausea and stomach pain, making you uncomfortable throughout the day. Also, you'll want to reconsider cold drinks before breakfast. Examples include iced coffee or tea, fruit juice, and fresh milk from the fridge. While you may not immediately feel discomfort, these beverages can gradually cause your stomach to become cold and weak. If you experience fatigue, abdominal pain, bloating, or weight gain without any specific illness, it can be attributed to consuming cold drinks in the morning. This is according to clinical cases. Las Vegas is gearing up for a potential record-breaking New Year's Eve as couples rush to tie the knot on the unique date of December 31st, 2023. The repeating pattern of 1-2-3-1-2-3 has made this date highly sought after in the Las Vegas wedding industry. With the added excitement of the holiday, many couples are flocking to the city to celebrate and say their vows. The current single-day record, record stands at some 4,500 marriages on July 7th, 2007, but this year's New Year's Eve could surpass that number. A pop-up marriage license bureau has been set up at Las Vegas' airport to make the process easier for couples. The pop-up bureau will be open from December 26th to New Year's Eve, allowing couples to pick up their marriage documents immediately after they land. And check out this image from the Hubble Space Telescope. It's captured mysterious ghostly shadows on Saturn's rings, the latest sighting of the so-called spokes that continue to baffle scientists. NASA says this is a composite photo taken by Hubble in October as Saturn was about 850 miles away. Million miles away, that is. Astronomers have long known about the perplexing spokes on Saturn's rings, but over time, Observations revealed that the spokes' number and appearance can vary depending on Saturn's seasonal cycle. Similar to Earth, the planet has an axis with a tilt that causes seasonal changes, though NASA says each season on Saturn lasts about seven years. Well, that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Please feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. And we'll be back with more stories tomorrow.